Today, uh, I want to start by, by sharing a, an idea with you. This is the time of the year where uh, the people who are into the arts and into movies are into the, what they call the, the award season. And what, what happens is that different organizations, different groups of people who know about movies and why not, they choose the best actors, the best picture, best dramas. And what happens is that if you ever see this award ceremony, this shows, there's a couple of people who come to the front and they say, and now, for the best actor, the nominees are, and the camera focuses on one person over here, on another person over there, and another one over there. And after a pause, they open an envelope, and they say, and the winner is. And now there's applause, there's music of the theme of the movie. Not that I've ever seen those shows, but I'm just imagining how it goes. And, and, and what happens is that, that once this person comes up and receives the, 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 the trophy, shows it, and gives a little speech. But always, always in the back of my mind, when I happen to imagine how those shows go, I asked two questions. The first question is, how do they choose these people to be worthy to receive the award? And second, what makes this individual worthy of receiving the award. See, every time that we are faced with a challenge, every time that we are faced with a difficulty, we have to come to a point where we have to realize that oftentimes we are not skilled enough to face that challenge. And when we realize that we are not skilled enough to face that challenge, we have to come to the realization that we need help to face it. The obstacle is our pride. John, the Revelator, in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, comes to a challenge, faces a challenge along with the people, with the individuals, with the creatures that are with him in this vision. And if you come with me to chapter 5, open your notes, get your uh, notes out. Um, Revelation chapter 5, we'll find that John encounters that there's only one who is able to help him. One, only one, who is worthy to be successful in facing this challenge. So it says in verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And last week, we talked about the throne. We talked about the one who sitting on the throne and who he is and his characteristics. A scroll, or according to the King James says, a book, with writing of both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the, in the first century, there were two kinds of books, per se. One was known as the Codex. And the Codex was an accumulation of sheets that were 
sewn together. But the thing about this is that the text says that this book, this scroll was written on both sides. So that means there's only two sides to this book. So that leads us to believe that the kind of material that is presented in this verse is a scroll. Because a scroll has only two sides. So a better translation for this text is that what John sees is that there is a scroll. There is a scroll that is written on both sides and it has seven seals. Now when he talks about seals, there's two things that come to mind. And the first thing is that there are limitations. And that this, this limits, these limitations set the parameters of who can open it and who can't. See, even today, when we receive a letter, there are certain letters that have seals. Special documents that only an individual to, this, to who the document is addressed to can open them. Today, we call them legal documents. And oftentimes when you receive the document, you have to sign. There is a signature that is required for that document to be open. But in those days, there was a common wax seal that was placed on the document that was only addressed to one individual. And only that individual was able to open it. So the seal, it's calling out for limitations. That not anyone can open it. But only one person can. The second thing about the seals that comes to mind is that when we talk about seals, is that there is an authority that comes behind it. See, in those days, when a king had a proclamation, it is, it, it, the document was stamped with a, sign, with, with, with a seal, with the signature or the ring of the king. So there was authority behind that document. So I'd like to say to you this morning that what John is trying to tell us in this first text of Revelation 5 is that in order for us to experience the power of God, we need to be aware of our limitations. You see, it is difficult to accept that we can do something. Especially some of us who, who, who at some point in time were athletes. Because, see, we come to a place in time in our lives where our bodies do not move the same way as they used to. We don't run as fast. We don't jump as high. We don't have strength as we once had it. And all we have left is the memories. But then when somebody says, hey, let's go play. Yeah, yeah. And you try to do the same things that you used to do, but your body's telling that, no, no, you can't anymore. But it's difficult to accept that I can no longer do the things that I used to do. Another thing that we need to understand is that there have been things that you have never been able to do. And when we are set with limits in front of us, and we have those limits before us, we, we don't want to accept, oh no, I can. I still can. Because that has to deal with our pride. And you see, family, the thing about pride is that that was the first sin that is ever recorded in history. Pride is the reason why 
Lucifer became Satan. From, from bringing the, the one that had the light to the one that became the adversary. Because of pride. In fact, pride has so much to do with the great controversy that at the center of it, when Jesus was baptized and went to the desert after being in communion with God, Satan came before him and told him, all this world I give to you, all these kingdoms I'll give to you if you worship me. Because it became a matter of pride. Accepting that I can't, accepting that I need help, is the first step on the right direction. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, worthy I mean, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So this angel presents John with a question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? So the angel John, pre, uh, presents John with a question, with a challenge, to see if John knew who was worthy to open the, the, the seals. But there's a problem. Verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. So they're looking around to see who can open it. In heaven, there's nobody. They look on earth, there's nobody. And even under the earth, whatever that means. But they can't find anybody. Verse 4, John says, I wept. And wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The reality here, family, is that John, when he understands that there's nobody who is worthy to open the seals, begins to cry. And, and you know, that should be our reaction to sin in our life. That when sin comes into our life, we got to find ourselves not worthy. And our reaction should be to cry. But the one thing that prevents us from crying when we're in sin is our pride. And we, we, first, we rationalize it. Well, you know, I only did it once. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody saw me. In fact, nobody's going to know. And if we ever confront it, we say, well, it's between God and I. We have that kind of relationship. Or we don't rationalize it. We just blame others. Well, it wasn't really my fault. It was because of my childhood. But John is showing us, John is showing us here that, that when we face the challenge of sin in our lives, tears, tears should run down our cheeks. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, the, the writer in his book, uh, Love in Times of Cholera, narrates the story of a couple a husband and a wife. And, and, and the situation at that time was that the wife was responsible from stocking the, the, the house with the simple things like soap and, and toilet paper and why not. 
But apparently one time, the wife forgot to put soap in the shower. And this caused a tremendous uproar with the husband. In fact, he exaggerated the situation and he said, it's been weeks that I haven't been able to take a shower with soap. Right away, the wife denied it. That is not true, even though she had forgotten to put soap in the shower. According to the book, it says that for seven, for seven months, they didn't talk to each other and lived in separate rooms. Soap. The author writes, Even when they were old and placid, they were very careful about bringing the topic up. For the barely healed wounds could begin to bleed again as if they had been inflicted only yesterday. And we can ask, can soap ruin a marriage? <laughs> the issue was not the soap. The issue was pride. Because none of them, neither of them both, could say, I'm sorry. The issue with pride is that the only force that can get rid of it is love. And that leads us to our second principle in this passage. That Jesus is worthy because of his selfless love for humanity. Jesus is worthy because of his selfless love for humanity. Verse 5 says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Remember, John is crying, right? The challenge of sin is there. Of the seals, nobody can open them. And, and he's crying. And now he says, this elder to John, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to op open the scroll and his seven seals. Now, something interesting about this, because he, John is, before this imagery, and the language that is used here, first, it's a lion of the tribe of Judah, and second, the root of David, it implies that this individual who is able to open the scrolls, it's royalty. It's not just anyone, it's royalty. And when we go back in the Old Testament, and let me tell you something, for those of you who like to study Revelation, you cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the Old Testament. And what happens here is that John is taken on a trip of Israel. See, Israel, God calls it in the Old Testament, my first son. And what happens is that it's a reference to what happened in the Garden of Eden. That Adam, being the first created human, fell. He dropped the ball. And when he dropped the ball, Satan became the prince of this earth. But when Jesus came to die on the cross, he picked up the ball. Because he was the root of David. In fact, you remember the story of Christmas. It just happened a month ago, right? You remember the story. Where was Jesus born? In the city of David. 
because his father Joseph, his earthly father Joseph, was from the family of David at the census that what everybody had to take part of. He had to go to the city of his family. And the city of Joseph's family was Bethlehem. And that was the city of David. So looking back in the Old Testament, it's pointing to this person who is individual, who is worthy to open the scrolls. It had to be from the royal family of David. And David belonged to the tribe of Judah. Now, first thing that we talked about is that in order to open the seals, it required authority. And Jesus, coming from the family of David, from royalty, had the authority to open them. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb. Wait, wait a minute. First he sees a lion, and now he sees a lamb. Now, one of the things that happened, one of the instruments, literally, um, instruments in literature that, that, that John uses is that he sees one thing and hears another. And even though they might be different, they mean the same thing. And we see that all through Revelation. But notice, then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain. So first, it's a, it's a royal lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, kingsly lion. But now it's a lamb that has been killed. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb has seven horns. Now horns, in, in, in uh, apocalyptic interpretation, horns mean strength. You remember those who, those who study the book of Daniel, that the goat and the ram have horns. One horn is prominent, but horns mean strength. So this uh, uh, lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And we don't have to go too far to know what these eyes mean because it says right there, which are the seven spirits of God. Now what's interesting about this is that it uses the number seven three times. And if you remember from last week, every time that we, use the num that we see the number seven in Revelation, it means one thing. The number four and the number three put together. Number four has to do with the earth, and number three has to do with the divinity. So when number four and number three are put together, that means that is the work of the divinity in humanity. No one, no one represents the number seven better than Jesus. Because being divine royalty became human. Are you with me? Verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So now what this lamb is doing, what, what this representation of Jesus is doing, is that he is sitting on the throne, he's in the middle of the throne, and he goes and takes the scroll for two reasons. He has the authority and he has been sacrificed. Humility, being king, decided to become human and gave his life. His life. So Jesus is representing two things, humility and love. Lamb looking, he says, as if it had been slain. It's pointing to the cross. Now, 
How do we know that this is what he's talking about? In Acts chapter 2, it reads, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are all witness of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. Where is Jesus? In the highest place. Now, the question now is when, at what point in history, this opening of the scrolls take place? And what does that represent? We understand that Jesus died on the cross. We understand that that event took place. But this opening, this ceremony of opening the scrolls, when does that take place? And what does it mean? See, the first thing that we have, the first clue that is given to us is that when this event happened, the seven spirits of God or the spirit of God in seven is present. There were two ceremonies, two ceremonies in ancient Israel when the people all together and the sanctuary came into place. Only two. The first one was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the cleansing of the temple. And that was the cleansing of the sins of the people of the whole nation for the whole year. So what happened was that for, for a week of preparation, the people were in prayer, gathered together, and around the, the, the sanctuary, waiting for the high priest to go into the most holy place to pray, to atone for the sins of the people through the whole year. And upon those prayers being successful and the high priest being able to walk out of the whole, most holy place, because see, if the high priest went into the most holy place and was not consecrated completely, had not been confessed, had not confessed his sins completely, he would die in the presence of God in the most holy place. Tradition tells us that for this event, the, the priest will tie a rope around the waist of the high priest because nobody could go into the most holy place. And around his waist, there, was so, there were some kind of bells. So as the priest was moving around, people outside of the tent could hear the bells moving. But if the bells ceased to sound, they knew they were in trouble. So if the priest went to the presence of God without being prepared to face God face to face, basically, he would die. So the only way to get him out was pulling him with a rope. Because the high priest needed to be worthy. That was the first time, the Day of Atonement. The second time was the day of the inauguration of the sanctuary. The day of the inauguration of the sanctuary, of the sanctuary was when everybody was around, formed in the, in the special formation that God has instructed Moses, and then the presence of God descended upon the most holy place in that Shekinah glory that would lead them everywhere they needed to be. And at that inauguration, the high priest was anointed to minister in the name of God and in behalf of the people. This oil was a representation of the Holy Spirit placed upon the high priest. 
Now, if there's a moment where you need to be awake, is this. The moment in history after the cross, when the Holy Spirit is present for the people of God, was the day of Pentecost. And the amazing thing about this, that was on Pentecost, that was the anniversary of the inauguration of the sanctuary. So what is happening, family, in heaven is that the sanctuary in heaven with Jesus as the new and ultimate high priest is occurring at this moment when he's given the scroll. And he's the only one that is worthy to open them in behalf, on behalf of the people. Are you with me? Notice what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 9. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. You see it here? So now at this moment, Jesus is inaugurated as the new high priest. And if you uh, are one of those people who like the book of Daniel in chapter uh, 9, when the the, the Holy of Holies is anointed at the end of the 70 weeks. That's what he's talking about. The inauguration of the sanctuary in heaven. Revelation 5.8. Let's continue on our text. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, let me, let me tell you about this event. The Lamb is Where? Where? But the throne, correct? In ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, there was a ceremony that when new king, when a new king arrived to the throne, and it was called the ceremony of enthronement. What they would do is that they were giving a, a copy of the book of the law, and this new king would sit on the throne and read the words of the covenant, and would make a promise: "I will rule, abiding." By this law. He was making a covenant with the people. And he was making a covenant with God. So that his authority be given by God for the people. So this is another example of what is happening here. Jesus in heaven as the Lamb of God as the root of David, is becoming enthroned. He is not just becoming a high priest, but he's also becoming a king. And we see here, family, something interesting, that Jesus receives a triple title in this passage. He is the lamb that was sacrificed. He is the high priest. And he is the king. Do you see those three things? That is Jesus. He is God, He is Savior, and He is King. So now we see something interesting that at the end of the text it says, Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. So we see here that there is a connection to the Pentecost again. Because if you remember, before the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in the upper room, what were they doing? They were praying. We see the elders being represented 
by the disciples, we see the prayers and we see the Holy Spirit that was sent through all the earth. So at Pentecost, not only the work of the Holy Spirit began on earth to preach the gospel, but also in heaven, the ministry of Jesus began in our behalf. That is why John says in the first letter of John that, my dear ones, if any, um, stay away from sin, but if anybody sins, we have an intercessor in our behalf, Jesus, the high priest. So now we come into a scene of worship. And you see, family, for us, what this means is that true worship is an inevitable result of the revelation of worthiness of Jesus. See, at the center of this great controversy, as I was saying, is worship. And at the end of it all, the only question that we need to answer is what or who we worship. Because whatever our worship is directed to, it's our destination. So this worship scene that is occurring in chapter 5 of Revelation is progressive. Notice what it says in, in, in uh, verse 9. And they, referring to the elders and the four creatures, sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is amazing that it doesn't say be, be, by your blood you purchased buildings. I will never stop telling you this, family. The most important thing for God is people. As Christians, as His church, the most important thing for us should be people. People should always matter more than buildings. People should always matter more than traditions. People should always matter more than rituals. Because you know what? They did for Jesus. And if we are Christians, that means little Jesus. That's the way it has to be for us. Notice, he is worshipped because he gave his life for people. For people. So the first song is about what Jesus has done. The second song is in verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So now all the angels are around, are around the center where the throne is and the elders. In verse 12, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. There are seven things that are mentioned about Jesus here. Seven things. That means that those seven things, these seven attributes, these seven characteristics, this song that is about who he is, his attributes, have to do with his connection with humanity. And there's a third song. And the third song is in verse 13. And this song is sang by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea 
and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And this song is not about who has, what he has done. It's not about who he is. But it is about the extension of his dominion and power. We're going to do a little exercise here. So you can understand how these this songs relate to this experience of worship. So we're going to divide the church. This group here is going to be the elders. You're going to be the elders. What are you going to be? Elders. This group over here, you're going to be the four creatures. What are you going to be? Four creatures. That sounded so harmonious. That's cool. Now, you here in the middle are going to be the angels. What are you going to be? Angels. Okay. So this is what we're going to do. On the screen, oops, on the screen, we have what the elders and the creatures are going to say. Okay, you see it? So when I point to you here, you're going to read, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You got that? Then when I point to the middle, angels, you're going to read. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and so forth and so on. And then when I point at everyone, all of us, all of us are going to repeat, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praised forever and ever. Are you with me? Okay, let's see if we got it. Let's start with the elders and the creatures. Everyone, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the Bible tells us that the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worship. The only other time where people in authority knelt down and worshipped was at the time where Jesus was visited by the wise men of the East. And they brought gifts. Gifts for a king, gifts for a sacrifice, and gifts for a priest. Jesus is the only one worthy because he is our sacrifice, our priest, and our king. But only, this could only have happened because of love. And it's love that drove Jesus to the cross for you and for me.